Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring two opposite parts of the globe, both defined by the sea, the Netherlands and the South Pacific. First, we visit the Netherlands. Rolinka Blooming, an Amsterdam-based tour guide, will explain how her densely populated little country, much of it below sea level, is living together in a spirit of tolerance and enterprise. She'll answer your questions from canals and dikes to pancake restaurants and Rembrandt. Then, David Stanley returns to give us an overview of the vast expanse of little islands scattered across the South Pacific, referred to collectively as Oceania. Polynesian village cultures might be paradise found, but we'll also find out that global warming and other contemporary issues are threatening to make it paradise lost. There's a lot to learn about our world as we voyage from Europe to Polynesia on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Sail along with us right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Every time I take a tour group through the Netherlands, someone in the back of the bus yells, Everything's so Dutch! Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we get an insider's guide to the Netherlands. And travel writer David Stanley opens up the South Pacific with a sunny and salty overview of Oceania. First, the Netherlands is a land of live and let live. It's a land where people really believe that a society has to choose, tolerate different lifestyles, or build more prisons. We're going to the Netherlands with a tour guide friend of mine from Amsterdam, Rolinka Blooming. Let's travel. Call me at one eight seven seven three 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 333 rick Email us at radio at ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we travel to the Netherlands. And I have with me my best Dutch friend, Rolinka Blooming, who is a good buddy of mine when it comes to guidebook research and filming the TV shows and taking our groups around Europe. And today, Rolinka is joining us in our Seattle studios, and it's nice to have you here, Rolinka. Thank you, Rick. Rolinka Blooming. Blooming. That means flowers, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, tell me about that. You've got the name Flowers, and everybody goes to Holland for flowers. <laughs> yes, that's true. But it's a very common family name. Is that right? A lot oh, of people. Yes. A lot oh, of people yes. in the Netherlands are named Flowers. Right. What's yes. the What's the deal with flowers in Holland? Well, we like the flowers. I mean, that's what everybody knows about uh, about the Netherlands. I mean, everybody has flowers in their house, in their gardens. A house is never, you know, a home without flowers, and it's also important for export. A lot of people want to go to the Netherlands for flowers. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not that much into flowers, really. But, boy, when I went to the Kuchenhof Gardens, that's what it's called? Kuchenhof, Kuchenhof. Gardens, oh, yes. incredible. And you've got to go there at the right time of year. These are the gardens just south of Amsterdam a little bit. Um, huge gardens. What, what's the best time if people want to see the flowers? Well, the Kuchenhof opens every year in the last week of March. And then it's eight weeks. So... Eight weeks. so Basically, April. April and May. is yeah. April, April is great. April and May. You like flowers. Be sure to go to the Netherlands right. when the flowers are in bloom. Yes, and it's not just at the Kokenhof Park. It is everywhere. If you're driving All through the, the country, place. you see these wonderful fields with you know, tulips. In, in Seattle, we brag that we've got the biggest building in the world where we build airplanes at the Boeing plant. But when mm-hmm. I went to the Netherlands, you guys claim that you have the biggest building in the right. world. Also, are you talking about Alsmeer? That's right. The flower auction. Yes. And to go there, we take our groups there. Yes. It's incredible. They've got literal train loads of flowers zipping in and about all through this vast indoor zone. And people come from all over Europe, I guess, to for the auction to buy flowers there. It's huge. Yes. It's very interesting to visit. But you have to be early in the morning. That's when the action is. Yeah. The best time to go is like 6 o'clock, 7, right? 6.30, yes. You can go there on the way to the airport. It's, it's like right at the Schiphol Airport. It's very close to Schiphol, yes. You could go there on the way to turning your car in at the airport. Right. Great way to, what a finale for your Dutch experience. Oh, yes, yes. Now, they have a different way to auction for the flowers because these auctions are very fast. And men are most of the big-time buyers, not women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of strange to me. Well, good. It's good for us women. I mean, we, That's my husband right. brings flowers for me in uh, every week. It's the Dutch way to go. <laughs> a lot of people think that must be the main export product for the, in the Netherlands, and that's not true. Hmm. Our main export product is natural gas. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Well, let's get back to flowers instead mm-hmm. of natural gas. Right. <laughs> the, only, the only place I have ever bought flowers in Europe in yes. order to put in my hotel room to cozy it up. 
was the Netherlands. Right. It just felt right. I don't know why. I mean, I'm sort of a cultural chameleon. I drink tea only in England, you know. I'll mm-hmm. drink uh, beer in Germany and red wine in, in, in France and so on. And I buy flowers in Holland. You just can't help it. You're going through a market. Everybody's buying flowers, putting them on their basket on their bike and pedaling home after a day of work. And they cozy up their house with some fresh-cut flowers. Yes. Now, the Netherlands is very small, the size of Maryland in, mm-hmm. Amer- in America. And what, 16 million people? More than 16 million people. Wow. So you must be the most densely populated country in Europe. Yes, I think we are. Yeah. I've heard it's, you can see the lights of Holland from the, the astronauts can look down and the Netherlands just is lit up. Right. Have you heard about yes, that? Yes, yes. The Netherlands and Belgium, both so that, countries that's really, are, yeah. All right. Now, Verlinka, when you come to one of our big parties here in Seattle with all of our travelers, you are so comfortable in your traditional outfits, dressed up literally like the milkmaid in a Vermeer painting. Right. Dutch yes. people seem to be comfortable with their heritage, their past. Yeah, we're, we're proud. People really like it. And I'm proud to represent the Netherlands. Oh, yeah, and it's a pretty outfit, too, didn't it's you think so? It's a gorgeous so? yeah. outfit. I love it. Yes. I love it. And you wear wooden shoes as if they're comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so many people ask that. And um, actually, they are comfortable. It's warm, and I wear them when I'm in the, working in the garden at home. I mean, you're the most modern person I think <laughs> yes. I can imagine. And you're actually at home in the countryside of the Netherlands right. wearing, I'm not talking little clogs. I'm talking no. big. Yeah. You could kill an animal with these things with wooden <laughs> shoes. Right. Berlinka, you're from the Netherlands, and you're also from Holland? Mm-hmm. So you're actually from Holland? No, it's not the same. Okay, tell me the difference, because this confuses a lot of Americans. Okay. Um, the Netherlands is the name for the whole country. Okay. I mean, it's just a small country, but that right. is the official name. If you look at my passport, it says uh, Nederlands. So that is the name for the whole country. And Holland is, well, it's something, if you want to go back in history, in the 13th, 14th century, you find the Dukes of Holland, and they used to live where now we've got these two provinces, so just a smaller part of the Netherlands, and that is called Holland, North Holland and South Holland. So Holland Holland is actually uh, a couple of states, north and south, of a bigger country that has how many states? You have more than two states then? Yeah, 11. 11 states. Right. But this is the dominant, this is... This is the biggest states or something? Mm, this is more, th- those two states are maybe the, the states everybody knows okay, about so that because that's your... where visitors go to and that's where the majority of the Dutch people live as well. It's in the western part of the Netherlands. Okay, yes. so the dominant, the dominant part of the Netherlands is Holland and that's most of our cliches of, of the Netherlands that mm-hmm. we think of was in Holland. Yeah, and that's where you find the big cities and yeah. Right. Relinka, we have some people on the telephone line waiting to talk to us, and I think we'll go right to some of our calls. Thank you all for calling in, and we'll get right to Ben in Oklahoma City. And Ben's a college student who wants to spend a semester in Utrecht at the university there. And according to the notes here, Ben, you're not very rich and you're concerned about your budget. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) What's your specific question, Ben? Thanks for your call. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to be able to do a lot of sightseeing over in the Netherlands, but money's kind of a big issue for me. My question is, what is the cheapest way to get around? Would it be train or by bus? And if I do a lot of sightseeing, should I consider getting something like a rail pass or something like that? So you're going to home base, you're going to school in Utrecht, a big city. Right, if it all works out, and that's, that's really where I'd like to be able to go. And you're wondering the best way to get around without spending a lot of money. Right. Any ideas? Besides walking. Yeah. Hi, Ben. Hi. Um, I would say, I don't know, how long do you plan on staying in the Netherlands? Is it for a year or so? Uh, about six months or so. Six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you plan on traveling a lot, you could buy yourself like this discount mm-hmm. uh, card. That, that's something we, we use and, and you just pay like, I think it's 45 euros a year and then you travel f- with 40% off. On the trains. Okay. On the trains. So, Ben, all over Europe, uh, if you're staying, if you're a resident, you'll have options to get a card like that mm-hmm. and you'll travel as cheaply as the local people do. But people who come in, like the typical tourist, like I would, you know, you'll pay top dollar for your train rides. But local people are traveling on the trains much less expensively because they're buying this residence pass that you will um, qualify for because you're a student there. Okay. Remember, they have a wonderful thing in Holland where you can uh, rent a bike at one train station when you get off and uh, pedal around from there. You can even drop it at another train station. Mm-hmm. And there's vast lots of bikes in, in these rail and pedal sort of lots, you know, and people will bike to the train station, park their bike there, zip into town, pick up another bike, 
Do some people even own a bike, Rolenka, at both ends or something? Or, or? Well, yeah, some do. Because, sure. I mean, you buy yourself a bicycle for 25 euros. There you go. That's, 20, that's $30, Ben, yeah. and you got yourself a, a set of wheels in the Netherlands. You can do that and really feel like a local. Ben was also... <laughs> did you have another question, Ben? Yeah, as far as the language barrier, I've heard that, you know, there's not much of a language barrier. But I was kind of wondering, uh, even in the smaller towns and stuff, uh, would I need to learn a little bit of Dutch? I think it will be hard for you to learn a little bit of Dutch because as soon as you try to speak Dutch, people will answer you in English. (laughs) Because, I mean, first of all, we all speak English and then, I mean, we also like to practice and, and, you know, you, you will be the right person to practice. So This is a disgusting thing about traveling in the Netherlands. <laughs> right. You just can't speak the local language because people love to speak English. Too. Right, yeah. And you folks speak, I mean, the Dutch people, you learn several languages, don't you? Yeah, we, we started when we are eight at school and everybody learns. I mean, all the kids now start learning English and German plus French. So You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody under 50 years old that spoke only Dutch. right. And especially yes. anybody you will encounter in the tourist business or any well-educated person or young mm-hmm. person, boy, they're going to speak English. You learn, what do you call it, the languages or something like that? You, you have just a whole set of languages you learn? Yeah, we learn like everybody learns German, English, and French, and then we learn another foreign language. Is that right? So literally right. these three languages right. are just your basic, you assume you're going to learn right. the big three, right? German, French, English. And then plus... Well, you choose at school if whether it's Italian or Spanish or whatever. You know, I was yeah. at the a- Amsterdam airport just two weeks ago, um, Ben and Rilenka, and it was uh, interesting to me. For the first time, I saw signs in the airport only in English, not even Dutch and English. I saw that too. Yeah. This is what that indicates to me that uh, as Europe unites, they're sort of choosing that English will be the language of commerce and transportation, and uh, why bother with more than one language, eh? Hmm. Yeah. The only, the only place I saw Dutch was for the first aid station. Okay. So, Ben, I don't think you'll have a problem with your uh, Dutch, but you should learn some Dutch words uh, just to be polite, I think. Right. Rolinka, teach us a few Dutch words. Like, um, thank you. Dankjewel. Dankjewel. Yes, dankjewel. Say that, Ben. Dankjewel. Very good, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say very good, Ben? Heel goed, Ben. Heel, say that again. Heel goed, Ben. Heel goed, Ben. <laughs> What else can we say? <laughs> Teach us another word. Um, bye-bye. Yeah, goodbye. Like tot ziens, goodbye. Tot ziens. Tot ziens. I feel very mm. good when I can say tot ziens. <laughs> yes. Now teach us something very, very difficult. Something like uh, I've seen, well, Ben will probably see that because he will be in Utrecht and there's a lot of canals in Utrecht. So a canal in Dutch is gracht. So you could maybe um, do the sentence I've seen... 88 wonderful canals, and that will be in Dutch. Ik heb 88 allemachtig prachtige grachten gezien. Okay, Ben. <laughs> what do you think oh, about wow. that? Do you want to repeat it? Uh, I'll try if I could. <laughs> Say it again, Rolinka. Gisteravond heb ik 88 allemachtig prachtige grachten gezien. <laughs> wow, there is a tongue twister for you. <laughs> All right, Ben, good luck with that, and uh, thank you okay. for your phone call. Okay. Tot ziens. Thank you, Bel. See you. Okay. Tot ziens. You bet. We've got lots more of the Netherlands and Dutch culture to understand with my friend and fellow tour guide, Rolinka Blooming, as we continue to travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking to my friend Rolinka Blooming, and Rolinka is a fellow tour guide and friend of mine from the Netherlands. Let's go to Canada. we got Norman on the line in Ottawa, Ontario. How are you, Rick? Great. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you for the tour books, the best in the world without a doubt. Thank um, you. My, and, and thanks to Rolinka, too. She helps me with my Amsterdam guidebook every oh, year. Oh, excellent. Probably one of the best ones in the series, I must say. Thank you. Um, we've been up. lucky enough to travel to the Netherlands several times. Uh, my wife and I have some good friends who live in Kotwijk, so we really enjoy using that as a nice, quiet home base to do all the tourist things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've, I've sort of got my own opinions on this, but I wanted your ideas as to what you think the most underrated tourist attraction in the Netherlands is, or, or maybe some place the tourists never get to that they should. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how far you want to travel. Um, what I like is the open-air museum in um, Enkhuizen, the Zuiderzee Museum. Have you been there? Yes, I have. Okay, let me think of something, because that's great. I mean, I like the open-air museums in general, and that one is really good. What about north of the Zyder Z? I, very few people go north of the Zyder Z or out to those islands. Yeah, the islands. Talk about those a bit. Well, the, the islands, it's a, it's a great destination as well. Eh? You just go up by train to Den Helder and take the ferry boat there to, to visit the islands. That's a popular thing Dutch people do as well. Really? And I think, you're right, not a lot of... Visitors go and What are the names there. of the islands? Uh, Tessel, uh, Vlieland, Ameland. You want to repeat that as well? No, thank you. Just <laughs> Let me see if I can find one with... <laughs> no, thanks. But, uh, yeah. And there would be sparsely populated and traditional lifestyles up there? Right. Oh, yeah. All right. I've heard that, to me, that's high on my list, Norman, is to check out those islands. That's it. Nobody ever seems to go past Amsterdam, up through the up up past, as you say, the Zuiderzee, and into those right. barrier lands, so to speak. And there's a there's a lot of uh, we managed to get a drive up through that area once, and uh, there's a lot of really beautiful pastoral land that that seems to be almost out of another era up there. Oh yeah, Hindelupen is no secret, but it's just a storybook little town north of the Zuiderzee. In Friesland, you mean, right? yeah. the province of Friesland. Friesland, mm-hmm. so that would be out of Holland. Then. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's see, but you know, Norman, what, what, what really plagues a lot of travelers when they go to the Netherlands is they base in Amsterdam and they side trip to Volendam and Manikendam and Markham and Edom and Harlem and all of these places that are so obvious and so close. They're great destinations, but they're very touristic. Uh, you will find a whole different personality when you go farther north. I would think also that a lot of people don't go to Rotterdam and that would be a good look at modern, a modern powerhouse city. And uh, we need to get a little bit out of the cute zone sometimes and into the reality zone and realize that, you know, Europe is a booming place, so it wouldn't be bad to spend a little time in a, in a big city just to feel the pulse of modern Holland. Well, they, ha- they have a marvelous new bridge there for all the fans of great architecture in Rotterdam, of course, and uh, the great barrier um, uh, machines that they put up at the mouth of the river there are absolutely magnificent when you go see them. Huge, massive gates that they swing shut when the, uh, when the seas get high, and it's, it's quite an engineering marvel to see. Now, that's uh, an actual tourist attraction or a visitor center, right, to learn about how they control the seas? That's right, and they have uh, full-scale models of how the gates work. Yeah. Uh, they have a, quite an interesting display of um, the most recent, uh, over the last half century or so, the most recent floods that have, uh, that have damaged the Netherlands and the efforts that they've been taking over the years to try and stop this from happening. It's, it's quite an interesting uh, exposure for people who are maybe just used to, uh, uh, you know, the little boy sticking his finger in the dike. Yeah, that's the mega version of that. Yeah. Boy, now, that's, you, you visit that from Rotterdam? Uh, yeah, it's actually just outside Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. If you head down the coastline... Uh, from where we were in Kotvike, it's not very far. Well, nothing's very far in the right. Netherlands. And, and what, is it, what is the name of that center? It's... Do you know? Delta Werken. The Delta Werken. The Delta Works. That's yes. it, yes. Oh, I've, Delta you know, Barrier, I guess you would call it in English. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Any other questions or comments, Norman? Uh, the only other question I had was, uh, I guess, sort of almost related to Ben's. One of my favorite sort of non-tourist destinations is Utrecht, and I'm surprised a lot more people don't go there. I mean... Uh, you know, this may sound sacrilegious, but I think the canals in Utrecht are far nicer than the canals in Amsterdam. What do you think, Erlenka? 
Well, well, you live in I, Amsterdam. I, I lived in Amsterdam, so I, I really like Amsterdam. But I do agree with, uh, yeah, yeah. Nor- Norman is saying with that Norman. Utrecht mm-hmm. is quite nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. great, Norman. Hey, well, thanks for your call. Thank you, and uh, good luck in your travels. Thank you very much, Rick. You bet. Hey, we got uh, Reed on the line in Richland, Washington. And uh, Reed, you were once uh, had a you had a bad uh, experience in the Netherlands. Yes, I did. It seems I can't really decide if this is a train etiquette question or just a how to. Uh, deal with uh, maybe a little bit of cultural uh, backlash from our amazing foreign policy, I guess. <laughs> I still haven't figured out exactly what the cause of it was, but if you uh, if you want, I'll, I'll relate the experience. Yeah, please tell us about it. Well, uh, my wife and I had been on our honeymoon uh, three weeks in Europe. Uh, we didn't have time to explore much of the Netherlands, but we did go to Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and we loved it. And on our way down to Brussels to catch our train uh, to Germany, uh, one evening, we were on a train, and we had doffed our backpacks and uh, sort of got out our food and started uh, munching away. And it was a first-class car. We had first-class tickets, and we were uh, just doing what we normally did. And um, a, a man came up to us and said something in Dutch, and uh, it didn't sound too complimentary, but uh, since we didn't know what he was saying, he eventually walked off. But eventually, he came to his stop and got up and came over to us in English and said, something to the effect of, this is not a garbage train. Why must you make this into a garbage train? And I, I really didn't know. I was sort of taken aback, so I didn't know what, the, what he was referring to. And I honestly said to him, what, is, what are you referring to? And he said, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And I said, no, I don't. And he says, oh, yes, you do. And, and so he finally he wouldn't say. And then he insulted me by saying, I thought you were probably an intelligent person, but I was, guess I was wrong. Well, Okay. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking my first impulse is to insult him, but I, I'm trying to be respectful of, of European culture, which I, I consider myself to be. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't drag America down by doing something like that in, uh, in a European train. But it took us uh, the next two weeks. We sat and wondered what exactly we might have done uh, wrong. Is, is there some sort of uh, uh, something that upsets people that they see Americans uh, do on Dutch trains? No, Reed, uh, this is uh, Rolinka here. First of all, I, I, I really feel sorry for you to, that you had that experience in, uh-huh. in, 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 in one of our trains. On their honeymoon. And, uh, <laughs> on your honeymoon. Yeah. And I mean, I, we, we always bring our lunch or, or a little picnic with us in the train. And, and I always eat at the train. I mean, I don't even have a car. I always travel by train in the Netherlands. And I'm really sorry that you had that experience because, well, of course, you can eat in the train. And if you bring your garbage with you or bring it, put it into a, mm-hmm. no, in, a in a garbage. Well, there, here's another uh, wrinkle. Um, we mm-hmm. both brought along uh, bedroom slippers so that we could slip off our hiking boots, and we had set our uh, hiking boots under the, the seats in front of us and put on our slippers, and I may have had my feet up on the seat. Is that well, I've, completely uh, verboten as well? I've gotten in trouble on trains for putting my feet on the seat across from me, and I'm very careful now to take my, well, take my shoes off. It's just sort of common, common sense, and I don't bring slippers, but that sounds like a nice idea. Uh, but, you know, you, you're going to encounter people in your travels that are, um, you know, it's, uh, these countries are very densely populated. Life is stressful for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of problems and a lot of m- cultural misunderstandings and so on. One thing, you know, I wouldn't, w- one thing you can't do is dwell on one sour, bad apple in a, in a, in a country of 16 million people. Um, so I would just let that go by. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of very forgiving about Europe because I just am inclined to like people and want to believe that people are good. And I cut him some slack. He, he's having a bad day or something like that. Uh-huh. Now, read on a related note, there is the, um, the notion that Americans are traveling over there these days when we know that uh, Europeans uh, can't believe our foreign policy, you know, and uh, we are unilateralists right now in America and, and Europe is really into multilateralism. Uh, they've uh, created the European Union basically not to have wars and they're not going to just get into preemptive wars uh, as, as readily as we might. And Europeans are pretty enthusiastically against our foreign policy. Now, for four years, for the first uh, administration of George W. Bush, they, you know, they could all just say, well, there was a strange election and so on. Second four years, we knew who we were electing. It was not a disputed election. And a lot of Europeans are cutting us less slack if they disagree with our politics. I suppose they have that right. Um, uh, It's amazing to me to think how vehemently opposed uh, Europeans are to our foreign policy. I mean, Madrid's a good example. I think there's 3 million people in Madrid and 2 million of them are on the streets at the same time 
demonstrating against our foreign policy. Oh, yeah, but that's just a focus group. Oh, yeah, right. That's just a focus group. Uh, my, my point, I guess, I, I'd love to get political with you here, Reed, but my point to try to stay out of that is just that we Americans will be accepted in general as individuals regardless of what people in Europe think of our government. For one reason, Europeans have a long history of their government uh, having a difference between the, the, what a lot of the people there want them to do and so on. So they, they understand that there's this sort of gap. And I find that I'm very... Um, very well received in Europe, regardless of what people may think of our government's foreign policy. Yeah. Rolinka, what is the politics in, in the Netherlands right now as far as uh, relations with the United States? Well, well, I, I like to say, first of all, one thing, um, because that's what our tour members always ask us as well, like what, what do people think about us and about the government and about the, the president? And, and first of all, it's and really I, I about say, you. I should say Rolinka takes hundreds of Americans around Europe every mm, summer for mm. our company. So she, better than me, knows what it's like now. As a European, in uh, taking care of literally hundreds of Americans each summer, talk a little bit about your experience, please. Yeah, well, what I, what I always try to, to tell is that it's about you. I mean, if you're traveling to the Netherlands, first of all, we're happy that you're coming because you're a visitor and visitors have always been welcome in our country. And it doesn't matter where you're from and what your government does. It's you. It's it's about you. And it's it's the way you approach people. If you approach people with a smile, people will be happy with you, regardless what your president is and what his uh, political ideas are. So it's it's about you. That's, that first of all. I think one thing we need to remember is Europe is so densely populated and there's so many different lifestyles packed into these countries that they have quite a challenge of living together. And the Dutch, I think, are leaders in toleration. I mean, historically, they've been very tolerant. I think it even goes back to getting people to come there so they could jump on the boats and be part of Henry Hudson's fleet. It's just you will tolerate different lifestyles. And... Um, Today, there's famous aspects of the Netherlands right down from prostitution and coffee shops for marijuana, different religions, and the government that really works to um, realize that, well, they believe they're either you got to tolerate alternative lifestyles or build more prisons. And the Netherlands pride themselves in having far fewer people in prison per capita than we do in America. Sure. Well, you know, I must say that we, uh, on our entire trip, did not, uh, except with this one experience, have any personal difficulties uh, with anybody in Europe, and for the most part, it didn't seem uh, that ever anybody ever acknowledged we were Americans or that yeah. we we're polit our politics. So I think you could tell from the way we were dressed with our Teva sandals and whatnot that we definitely oh, yeah. couldn't be uh, taken for Europeans. You know, but, that's one thing funny. Still, it was a really uh, positive experience, and we had great interactions with most everybody. A lot of Americans try to hide the fact that they're Americans, but Europeans, I think, know who the Americans are, and I've never dreamed of hiding the fact that I'm an American in Europe. I've been traveling in Europe for 30 years through all sorts of political ups and downs. My Americanness in Europe, I think, is a plus. Europeans are happy to see that Americans are traveling because I think Europeans believe if all Americans traveled, our country would fit better into this planet. Right. Linka, how do you, how do you identify, are, are Americans easy to identify just visually? Yes. How do you, how do you identify Americans visually? Wearing shorts in the cities. Wearing shorts in the cities. Wearing the the sports shoes, the Nikes. Colorful tennis shoes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. or just tennis shoes at all. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Especially for like going out for dinner in a restaurant, we would normally not wear shorts, but dress up a little bit. And mm. shorts are for going to the beach. Also, I find Americans are a little bit noisier than Europeans in public places in Europe. I've been on train cars in Europe, like Reed was talking about, and there's 20 people on the train car, and there's one loud conversation, and invariably it's American tourists that are talking louder. I think Americans need to listen and realize that you're living in a very densely populated world that knows how to live together, and, and sometimes people are out to get a little peace and quiet. Reed, thank you very much for your call. Well, thank you, and I just, uh, my w wife would like to say hi. She ran into you in a little uh, raclette stube in Zurich last spring, and she recognized your voice, and she said to say hi to you. Raclette in Zurich. Hello. Good. Thanks again, and happy right. travels. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you. All right. Relinka, I want to talk a little bit about just living below sea level. I mean, is it nervous? Is it nerve-wracking? Are, are you a little anxious to live below sea level? No, we're not because we're used to it. I mean, we, 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 we're used to live under the sea level, yes. But it's, it, I don't think it's the living below sea level anymore. That's not what that worries us so much. 
it is the water. It is the water issue, but not the water from the North Sea. It is the water from the rivers. The the the. I mean, is the, that what might flood? You mean? Yes. Really? Yes. The floodings are from coming from the east now. The water's come from the east I and not from the that. west. Yeah, with the melting of the glaciers. I mean, there's all these, the sources of the big rivers are in Switzerland and then they flow through the different European countries and they end up in our country. So we've got all this water in our country now. You've got and, water on all sides of you. And right. I would think global warming has a special meaning in the Netherlands. Right. Because, I mean, everybody knows if global warming is a fact. And do Europeans mm. think that global warming is an established thing? Yes. If you speak to the Swiss, they really worry about it a lot. And we worry a lot about it, too. There's no more summer skiing in the Swiss on the glaciers. The glaciers are just shrinking. Right. Munich people are eating outdoors now as if it's an old tradition. Right. And it's not like that before in Germany. And But in the, if, the, if, the, if the seas are rising, if the world is warming up, the glacial ice caps will melt, the sea will rise enough to actually have cause the Netherlands to take another look at their dikes, wouldn't it? Mm, I think we've got the dikes under control. So in the West, after this big flooding in 1953, we created all these new dams and dikes and locks. And okay. and I think they've got that under control. But the water that flows into the country, that's I mean the it. rivers, that that's a, a difficult part. So the, the Netherlands, most of your country is reclaimed from the sea. Yeah, but the, the new policy of the Dutch government is not to reclaim more land. So we're not going to create more land. We're going to live and accept to, to how to live with the water and with the floodings. So they do kind of interesting things with the water management at the really? moment. I just saw something on TV last week. It was a documentary about uh, the water management for the next five or ten years. And what they do, for example, is we've got all these huge um, greenhouses and the new projects are uh, floating greenhouses. Ah. And it's even, I saw some interesting things on TV that they build new houses now, let's let's call it on the wrong side of the dike. Of the, so there's all these dikes along the, on the banks of the river and people normally live on the other side of the dike, but now they live on the river side of the dike. They build those houses there and these houses are starting to float when the water rises. Floating greenhouses. R yeah, floating greenhouses, but even floating houses where people really live. Even even in old houses, there's a house that I toured, and in the basement, it's all water, and they have <laughs> the whole bottom floor is like a boat that right. rises and drops. Right? That's an Adam. Uh, in Adam. Yes. Very, yes. very memorable. The Dutch. No, what the Dutch say is, God made the world, but the Dutch, we made Holland. Yes, that's that's how it goes. Now it says, uh, God created the world except for the Netherlands because the Dutch did that themselves. The Dutch did that themselves. They wow. say if you stand on a chair, you can see all the way across the country. Not quite. Well, they also say, okay, it's good that the country is so flat as a pancake because uh, today, if you look outside of the window, you can already see who's coming to visit you tomorrow. Well, that's good. We can see very far. <laughs> We've got lots more of the Netherlands to enjoy with my friend and fellow tour guide, Rolinka Blooming, coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. I am Colin Clement, and I live in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I live in Scandinavia, the Moss, and I am a Safar And that was Egyptian Arabic for My name is Colin Clement, I'm originally from Edinburgh, Scotland, but I live in Alexandria, Egypt, and I travel with Rick Steves. I am Colin Clement, and I live in Edinburgh, Scotland, but I live in Scandinavia, and I live in Hey, we've got more calls for you, and thank you. I'm talking to my friend Rolinka Blooming. That's flowers in Dutch, and Rolinka is a fellow tour guide and friend of mine from the Netherlands. We have Marsha on the line in New Hampshire. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Well, I was uh, in the Netherlands last year. My husband and I visited in early April, and for me, the two highlights were a visit to Koikenhof, and I just wanted to say it's so much more than tulips. It was all the spring flowers, and it was so spectacular. I just enjoyed it immensely. Um, living up in the mountains of New Hampshire, of course, our spring comes a little bit later. 
so it was really nice to go over and have two springs. Wow, now this is, just to review, Marcia, this is Kuchenhof, that place about an hour out of Amsterdam, which in April and May is flower lover's paradise. Yes, yes. And I think people just think about the Netherlands as tulips, but like I said, there was all the spring flowers were represented, and it was just acre after acre, and it really was worthwhile. And the other place that we went to that I uh, really enjoyed were the um, windmills at Kinderdijk. And that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And we were lucky enough to get there when one of them was open and got to go inside. And what really um, struck me was how fast and how strong they were. Hmm. I mean, I think you have this uh, image of that being kind of like lazy and bucolic, and those were very strong. And if you got close to them, they could do some real damage, but it, it was very impressive. Oh, boy, it is thunderous fast when those things are whirring by. Yeah, isn't there, isn't there, didn't earn a lot of the, uh, if somebody's acting really stupid, what do they say? And then he got hit by a windmill or something like that? Hit by a windmill, right. <laughs> I, I'm dredging up all the, all the, the lower end things about the Dutch culture. Yeah. Marcia, so you enjoyed the windmills. Yes, and uh, the other thing was we uh, found the pancake restaurants. Actually, there was a place um, next door to our hotel in Leiderdorp, and that was very unique. Um, the thatched roof, kind of like a cottage from the outside, but it had a lot of locals eating there. It wasn't a tourist restaurant, and, you know, it was very nice to experience that. And we're not talking pancakes for breakfast, right? No, this was dinner, and they were, you know, they had both the sweet and savory pancakes, but, you know, they, they take up the whole size of the plate, mm. which is huge, and each one is a meal in itself. Yeah, you know, we think about uh, Dutch cuisine, and, I mean, one of the highlights for travelers like Marcia is the pancakes. Uh, Rilinka, tell us, because this is different for Americans. We have pancakes for breakfast. Yeah, we don't have breakfast. Uh, we don't have pancakes for breakfast. For us, br- uh, pancakes is lunch or, or even dinner, yes. And that's how we grew up. I and mean, how do you uh, flavor the pancakes? What's are they just any number of ways? Yeah, I mean, if you like the sweet things, you or, or you could do it with apple or with cinnamon or. And the savory ones. Yeah, just like cheese, an omelet or a ham, pizza. And, yeah. What's the word in Dutch? Pannenkoeken. Pannenkoeken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have a pannenkoeken. Uh, they're so big, as as Marcia was saying, that uh, you really want to uh, sp- uh, split them. You know, things are expensive in Europe for Americans because they're dollars done, but they're also expensive for Europeans because with the euro changeover. What, what is the deal, Rolenka? With the euro, the prices went up on Europeans, didn't it, when you went from guilders to euros? Mm-hmm. Yes, officially. I mean, they had to convert it in, a, in, in the official way, but most of the restaurants, and, in, and like if you were in cafes, they rounded it up a lot. Rounded it up to the next euro. Oh, yeah. Yes. So things have bumped up for, mm-hmm. for Europeans as well as Americans, yeah. and they've gone up for Europeans because of just the big jolt in prices with the transfer to the euro a couple years ago, and they've gone up for Americans because for that end... The value of our dollar relative to the euro has gone down recently. But but that that's on one hand. But on the other hand, there is this big supermarket battle going on, yeah. and the prices in the supermarket are really low, and they're even lower than before the introduction of the euro. Is that right? Is this right. because there's bigger scale of mm, pricing and so on? I mean, people can buy in large quantities? Or no, I don't think so. It's competition. It is competition, especially because... Also, the locals don't go out that much anymore because it is more expensive. So that means that we all need to shop in the supermarkets, and they want customers. Right. Things mm. are things are pricey for Europeans right. these days. Yes. So we got to just be more frugal. The Dutch are good at that. Mm. You're famous for that. <laughs> we were just talking about uh, with Marcia talking about pancakes. Would it be okay to split a pancake in a restaurant? We would not do it. Really, even and I think I think even with these new new higher prices, I think instead of going out for dinner twice a week, we would maybe only go once. Let's talk about Dutch frugality. I mean, do you say going Dutch? We say if you're going to split things, you go Dutch. No, we <laughs> we don't we don't say that. <laughs> Let's go Dutch. But I mean, they say the best way to make copper wire is let two Dutch people fight over a penny. <laughs> no. <laughs> Where does this come from? Your reputation for being? I, I don't know. I don't know. Is it true? We say we say the same thing about the Scots. Okay, so we say things about the Scots too being frugal. So the oh, Dutch think right. the Scots are frugal. Yes. I'll have to ask my Scottish friend about the <laughs> about their take on the Dutch. Hey, Marcia, thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you. I'm so happy that you've got a radio show now. Great. Well, thanks for tuning in. Okay. Bye, bye now. Bye. Happy travels. Thank you. 
Let's talk just for a minute about Amsterdam, mm-hmm. the greatest city to visit mm-hmm. in that part of Europe, I think. Right. Uh, well, you know, the Dutch had their golden age. The 17th age century. 17th mm-hmm. century. That's when it was one of the most powerful and richest places in Europe. Got all that power. You got a lot of great art. A lot of great art. Put it in a museum. Right. Rijksmuseum. No, but in the 17th century, people wanted to have art in their houses. I mean, it is not. It wasn't art art for in the church or or for in a museum. People wanted to have art in their houses, even those who didn't really had a lot of money. Um, they all wanted to have art and portraits and still lifes, and and that's how it all started. I mean, it's now in the Rijksmuseum and all these wonderful museums. Yeah, but, and, and those less earth shaking pieces of of art, the the affordable middle class merchant class art, is sort of. Uh, that's what Dutch art, I think, is all about. Mm-hmm. And, when you, and it has a historical basis. The Dutch, I believe, were the first people to have a revolution for independence breaking away from their Spanish king. It used to be the Spanish Netherlands. They broke away. They didn't want to be Catholic and they didn't want to be ruled from Spain. They became an independent Protestant republic. And that was good news for the Dutch in a lot of ways, but bad news for artists because you had no more kings and no more big shots in the Catholic Church to pay for your art. And there was a difficult adjustment and the great masters that we think of, Franz Halls, Rembrandt and so on, now had to earn their money not painting big commissions for the bishop or the king like Rubens might have done in Catholic right. uh, Belgium. Flanders, but, yeah. but now Rembrandt and Franz Halls had to paint for the local Rotary Club and the business owners and, and the city council and uh, portraits Civic for arts. big shots and, and just still lifes for people who are hardworking business people that wanted a, a little bit of the good life on their wall. They didn't want a bishop or a, a saint preaching at them on the wall or anything that was propaganda. They just wanted to celebrate the good life. And we have these beautiful still lifes from the Netherlands. That's the, the simple uh, definition of why the Dutch art is, is so accessible and so people-friendly. And now the Rijksmuseum is closed for several years, but thank goodness they've kept all of the greatest pieces of art that we all want to see and stuck it in a wing of the Rijksmuseum called the Philips Wing. And you go there now, and, and this is like a four-year project or something. They're fixing up the Rijks, this incredible building. But you've got, it's like distillation of all the greatest art in just a couple of rooms. It is really a delight. Also, there's a wing of the Rijksmuseum, or a little part of the collection, out at the Schiphol Airport. Yes. Have you been there? Yes, of course. It's incredible. Yes. When you're waiting for your flight, you can enjoy some beautiful Jan Steen and uh, Rembrandt and so on. Rolinka Blooming, thank you so much for joining us, and I think we've all learned a lot about your beautiful country, the Netherlands. Thank you for having me here, Rick. Dank u wel. Dank wel. Tot ziens. Tot ziens. Tot ziens. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're traveling to the South Pacific. There's a watery continent called Oceana, and I've got a man who's written a thousand-page guidebook on Oceana, and it's the South Pacific Handbook published by Moon. And this man is David Stanley. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. David, what a beat. You've got this huge, watery continent, Oceana, and, and that's what you cover. Yes, it's it's immense. Uh, I I cover my book uh, covers the whole area from Easter Island to the Solomon Islands. So almost from the from South America right over to Australia. Now, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is it Oceania? Oceania. Oceania. Yeah, and, there's an I there at the end of the word. <laughs> and it's 15 different countries. Well, they're not all independent countries. Some of them are still colonies, like there are three French colonies in the South Pacific, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, and Wallace and Futuna. And then there are several associated states with New Zealand, including the Cook Islands, Niue, and Tokelau. And a monarchy, too. And there's a monarchy, yes, Tonga, the Kingdom of Tonga. It was the, it's one of the few countries in the world which was never colonized by the West. And, you know, you can count the number of, co- of, of countries around the world that were never European colonies, like there was Japan, Nepal, I think Saudi Arabia, and Tonga. Only a few countries, and, and Tonga's one. Wow. And they still have the same king descended from uh, the... You know, the 17th century, his ancestors welcomed Captain Cook there for the first time. I just have a hard time even imagining that there are vital, 
independent culture still thriving in this age where there's a Starbucks on every corner. But it sounds like in South Pacific you can actually connect with this Paradise Lost business or Paradise Found business. You can because the the basic unit in most of the South Pacific countries is the village. And village culture is very strong based on, you know, sharing of the land. Usually, often the land is communally owned and it's assigned to a person for their lifetime, but it isn't owned by that person. It definitely cannot be sold to people off-island. And so the culture remains very strong and... um, very pure, and yet they're not, these people are well-educated. You should never underestimate a South Pacific Islander because they are, they have their own way. It might not be the same as us, but they are very, very up on everything. They know what's going on around the world. They know about global warming, about all the problems we have in the world. It's a big mistake to underestimate a South Pacific Islander. Wow, and I bet, with given their uh, geography, I bet they are concerned about global warming if that would result in the rising of the sea. Exactly. It's it's uh, Actually, there's one country there, Tuvalu, which is, is destined to be totally inundated within the next century. And uh, probably all of the population will have to be evacuated to, uh, the population about 8,000 at the moment, will have to be evacuated to Australia and New Zealand. And they are actually challenging the United States in the world court. Um, well, I don't think the case has actually been brought up, but they have lawyers working on it. They're, they're suing the United States for creating this pollution, which is causing the sea level to rise and their whole country to be, to be uh, flooded. Well, a lot of people have created it. It's not just the United States, but I would say they've got grounds to be upset given the fact that the United, Na- United States has outvoted in the United Nations 140 to 4 when it comes to global warming uh, initiatives. Right. Right. Well, there is there are people working on this in the South Pacific, and it's it's quite uh, well known. But you know, this is this is a, a fantastic area because it's far enough away from large continents that they don't receive huge number of tourists. Like yeah. the Caribbean and the Mediterranean are, in some ways, comparable island destinations. Um, but they are right next to big continents, which are sending lots of people down there. Places like Samoa or the Cook Islands are far away, and they don't get the masses of tourists that Hawaii gets, for example. I'm speaking with David Stanley, the author of The Moon Handbook to South Pacific. It's a thousand-page tome. It's the definitive guidebook for an uh, entire continent that we don't think much about, Oceania. And uh, I was reading in your book, David, uh, in the South Pacific, you say there's 7,500 islands, and only 500 of them are populated. And what would the population in ballpark terms be for the entire continent of Oceania? It's probably about a million. It depends whether what you include, you know, like some people when they're talking are mainly tour operators. If they talk about the South Pacific, they include Australia and New Zealand in, in that. Oh, yeah. But I wouldn't include those countries at all in the South Pacific because they're, they're totally, they operate totally differently. And then you have to include Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. which has a population itself of three or four million. Yeah, but apart from that, this scattering of 15 or 18 little independent countries, it's basically it's a huge rectangle between Australia and South America, and your guidebook covers this. You know, let's just talk uh, briefly, David, about the logistics of, of getting there. Uh, tell me about, because you've done it with different air passes. I would imagine these days you have airplanes that hop from island to island. You get there... Um, from the USA, can you get an air pass? Can you hop around with no problem with visas and, and these kind of restrictions? Well, there, there are no visas required in any of the countries included in my book, which, which includes everything, you know, right across. So you don't have to worry about visas. Now, air-wise, air um, the main hubs in the South Pacific are Tahiti and especially Fiji. If you can get to Fiji, you can go almost anywhere in the South Pacific. And there, are, there is a South Pacific air pass, which uh, covers most of the islands. But what I recommend people, that the most efficient way to do it is to book through Air New Zealand, and you can buy a, tick, a sort of an island-hopping ticket that they call the Coral Route. And that will take you from anywhere on the west coast of North America down to um, Tahiti, Cook Islands, mm-hmm. Fiji, and then back to to uh, Hawaii, or if you want to do it a slightly different way, instead of going back to Hawaii from Fiji, you go down to New Zealand, and then you come back to Hawaii via 
um, Tonga, and Samoa. So you can include almost all of those destinations on one ticket for one price. Okay, so you mentioned in your book that Australians generally think of uh, Indonesia and Thailand as their vacation zone, and New Zealanders think of all of these little island nations in Oceania as their vacation zone. Exactly. So think of it as the playground of New Zealand. Yes. New Zealanders have traditionally gone to Cook Islands and to Fiji and Samoa, for their holidays, but New, New Zealand is a small country. Uh, it's you know like how many people live in New Zealand? I, I'm not. I don't have the figure here. It's three or four million. Not many. It, it, it isn't. It isn't. Um, it isn't a mass tourist destination like um, you know like you've got 250 million Americans who might want to go to Hawaii sometime right. in their life, as opposed to three million New Zealanders who might want to go to the Cook Islands sometime. In their or life. the vacationers in Europe who want to inundate uh, Majorca and Menorca exactly, and so on. That's exactly. why I steer clear of those islands. Yeah. And, and, you know, this has kept the prices down. Like, mm-hmm. the South Pacific is generally much less expensive than the Caribbean once you're there. David, we could talk a lifetime in this, but I just want to let our listeners know that uh, you've written, you've dedicated 20 years of your life to writing this uh, South Pacific handbook uh, published by Moon. And David Stanley is our traveler. He's got a website, South, what is it, David? South SouthPacific.org, O-R-G. SouthPacific.org to learn more about this. And uh, David, thank you for a, a little look at a fascinating corner of our planet. Well, you're welcome, Rick. Bye now. Bye. Beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me My lover stands on golden sand And watches the ships that go sailing Somewhere beyond the sea She's there watching for me If I could fly like birds on high Then straight to her arms I'd go sailing Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.